0: Welcome to the Hot Crime Cold Coffee podcast with Pauline and Angie. Each week we bring you new episodes on Wednesdays and Fridays. Each episode includes our favorite coffee that we're drinking, a missing person spotlight, and whatever case we're currently working on. We also have bonus episodes Monday through Friday, Daily Cup of True Crime in 15 minutes or less, where we share trivia, true crime updates and headlines and fun facts. So join us. Please be sure to follow us on social media for bonus material. Listener discretion is advised due to sensitive and sometimes violent content. Welcome to episode 15 of our podcast, part 14 of the Vallow Daybell case. It's just me, Pauline, again, because Angie is still at hunting camp in Utah, but she'll be back next week, which is fantastic because it's much easier doing all of this and all of the background work when there's two of us together together doing all of the research and all of that fun stuff. Gosh, I miss her and she has missed all of the snow that we've gotten this week, as well as she's going to miss my family's harvest party. We don't do a Halloween party. What we do is a harvest party and it's something that my family did as a kid. We didn't really celebrate holidays But around Halloween time we'd all get together as a family. We would watch movies Have donuts Bob for apples and things like that, but my dad called it a harvest party my mom would make these little mini pizzas and some of the movies that we would watch are the Goonies and The Princess Bride not really Halloween movies But that's what we were allowed to watch that time of year. There was even one time that we watched the movie The Watcher in the Woods. And if you do watch it, don't watch the remake. Watch the original that was made in the 80s. I believe 1980. As usual, I have your featured coffee, your missing person spotlight, a couple updates, No headlines today because I've covered all of them in the daily episode today and there really hasn't been anything new and then we'll get to the rest of the episode. Today's featured coffee is the Brown Shoe Blend by Old Salt Coffee and Angie is not the only one who's a sucker for awesome packaging but there's a couple reasons why I wanted to feature this coffee today. The first one is that you guys had asked that we feature a light or medium roast. So here you go. I have a medium roast coffee that I have drank and I highly recommend. I ordered this last week and I drank it yesterday and today and it is so good. And then the second part of it is that old salt coffee was established by Navy vets. And the Navy is near and dear to my heart. Because my dad served in the in the Navy in the 50s right at the end of the Korean War. He was on the USS Skagit. And that was the other thing that drew me to this coffee besides the awesome packaging. Like super pretty. We like packaging that's cool. And... Coffee always goes great with a gift basket, especially if it has pretty packaging. You can find their coffee online on Amazon or at their site, OldSaltCoffee.com. And you should check out their hoodies. Their hoodies look really cool. And I might just splurge and buy myself their Brand Shoe Blend hoodie for my birthday because that is totally something that I could wear and I possibly could get away with it at work because the logo's on the back, not the front. Today's missing person spotlight is from Illinois. And if you didn't listen to the daily from Monday, we have started every single Monday to feature a missing indigenous person. Every single Monday. So make sure that you check that out. And we're still going through the alphabet during our regular episodes. So today's missing person is Marianne Ruth Switalski, missing from Illinois since July fifteenth, nineteen 1963. She went missing from Chicago, Illinois, and is considered an endangered runaway. She's female, white was born on September 14th, 1946. So today, she would be about 76 years old. She was 16 when she disappeared. Five foot two, 102 pounds. At the time of her disappearance, she was wearing a black sleeveless blouse, white shorts, and straw sandals. And she has blonde hair and hazel eyes. She was last seen at 10.15 p.m. on July 15th, 1963. She had gone to a carnival with friends at St. Priscilla's Catholic Church. And that was the last time anyone ever saw her, including her friends and her family. Her parents got a letter two days after she disappeared. She wrote in the letter that she was fine and would be sending them money soon. She said that she was going to experience a strange but educational experience. She didn't tell them where she was because she said that she didn't want anyone to interfere. And she also added to her letter that she might never see her parents or friends again, but she would call. The letter was postmarked Oak Park, Illinois, where she had often gone shopping with her family. It was an area that she was familiar with. They never heard from her again. That letter was the last anything that they got from her. Her parents don't know why she ran away and weren't aware that anything was going on she was a good student she had just completed her junior year in high school she had put down a deposit for a senior yearbook and class rings. so she was getting ready to graduate and appeared to be excited about it she had a job at a local store and was also earning money babysitting and she lived with her parents and younger sister in the 6200 block of west cornelia avenue I think that it's a little odd that she never contacted her family again. And I question if maybe that letter was even authenticated. It probably was if it's been released to the public. But everything seems kind of suspicious. And just because you receive contact... From someone, that doesn't mean that they weren't abducted, right? A prime example that I can think of off the top of my head is the Israeli pilot Ron Arad. They got letters, they got videos, but he was in danger the whole time. So there's that. I guess it wasn't the best example, but he obviously was a prisoner of war and he died as a prisoner of war. But the Israeli government did get communications from him throughout his captivity until his presumed death. So that could be something that happened to her that she was kidnapped but they made her send that letter so that law enforcement would not follow her. It was established, though, that after she disappeared, Marianne joined an organization that sold magazines door-to-door. The organization was traveling west towards California at the time. When questioned, the couple who ran the group admitted they had hired her, but gave conflicting statements as to what happened after she was hired the wife said marianne had left the group sometime earlier and the husband claimed that she had never left chicago could it be not necessarily a hostage situation but could have been some type of cult thing or had they truly abducted her could it be human trafficking They didn't really talk about human trafficking back then, but that could be a possibility. They kidnapped her to work for them to sell newspapers. It is, it is a possibility. I'm not saying if that really happened or not, but yes, it's absolutely a possibility. I've noticed that the later it is during the day that my accent seems to become more pronounced And I stumble over words and it's because I have like multiple languages bouncing around in my head and during the day it's easier to think in English but then in the evening it changes to other languages. Sometimes it's Hebrew, sometimes it's Russian, sometimes it's a combination of five or six different languages. So I apologize if I stumble a little bit over my words. Last episode, I spoke too soon. I said it had been a while since we had had any updates on the de Daybell case. I even knocked on wood. I even did a tfu too spitting thing, and apparently I jinxed us because some motions were filed yesterday. There was a hearing today, and there's another hearing on the 28th. The motions were sealed as well as the hearing today and some of the court documents that have, I guess, are floating around online because I don't know if those documents are even public record or not. I haven't tried to see if they are, but it could be regarding Lori's mental health capacity and if she is still deemed competent or not. Besides the sealed motions that were possibly regarding Lori's competency, there was another motion that said conflict on it. There's very limited information unless you can gain access to the public record. And again, a lot of the stuff has been sealed. My question is, does someone have a conflict of interest or a motion regarding conflict could be because of misconduct? I don't even know if we'll find out why this motion was filed. We'll have to see. But it appears that they are finally sealing court documents correctly. They're filing a motion to seal it. They are justifying why those records are being sealed and then finalizing that order. So it looks like they're all on board this time with the sealing of the documents. And hopefully moving forward, they will continue to do so. I'm sure there will be more information coming out in the next couple of days, and I'll keep you updated, if not during the dailies, then on Friday's episode. During the last episode, I went through the timeline for December of 2019, and today I'm going to do January and hopefully get to February. The regular episodes we do try to keep them under an hour last episode ended with the december 30th 2019 press release from Rexburg pd stating that they know that the children are not with lori and chad and they had information indicating that lori either knew the location of the children or what had happened to them because on December 20th is when the media was alerted that these two children were missing. In January of 2020, Lori and Chad are still in Hawaii. They fled to Hawaii after law enforcement showed up at Lori's home in November. They came to do a welfare check and after they verified that nobody knew where the kids were, they went back the next day and Lori and Chad were gone. On January 3rd of 2020, Rexburg Police Department and the FBI serve a search warrant at Chad Daybell's home in Salem, Idaho. They do a complete search of the house and they collected 43 items some of chad's family was there during the search and chad's daughter emma made faces at the reporters chad's children are the only ones left in his family that publicly still support him And that was, I think their interview was sometime last year. Let me look at that really quick. That's right. Their last public interview was in 2021 in September on 48 hours. And there does not appear to have been any public statements or interviews since that. On January 6th of 2020, Fremont County and Rexburg Police Department, they issued a press release saying that they had executed a search warrant on Chad Daybell's house. They confiscated 43 items, including electronic, electronic devices, journals, documents, and medications. On January 7th, Larry and Kay Woodcock announced a $20,000 reward for information leading to the recovery of J.J. and Tylee. Even though they're only related to J.J., they're advocating for both of the children. It's not just J.J., they're advocating for Tylee as well. On January 10th, Chad Daybell's younger brother, Matt, releases a statement expressing dismay at Chad's sudden marriage to Lori and urging him to cooperate with law enforcement regarding the disappearance of Tylee and JJ. Matt and his family have released several statements in the last couple of years and have publicly been extremely supportive of Kay and Larry. On January 13th of 2020, body cam footage, a recording of the 911 call and the police report from the day that Charles Vallow was shot is obtained by Fox 10 and released on the media. On January 14th, surveillance video from Yellowstone National Park was given to the Rexburg Police Department. Some of the... Rumors that were going around, or I guess some of the suggestions, would be if the two children were found in Yellowstone because there's so much land there that is remote and hard to get to that it would have been easy to hide a body there. There's also that weird theory, that little section of Yellowstone that's on the Idaho border that supposedly is the place to commit the perfect crime because in that county, there is no judicial system because nobody lives there and one of your basic constitutional rights is to be tried by a jury of peers in your county well and it's not going to happen there but there are hot pools thermal pools cliffs ravines things like that where a body could easily be disposed of and nobody would even know there was a foot that was found this year just a foot that was found in a thermal pool in Yellowstone I'm not sure if they have identified who it is yet or not on January 25th Lori is served in Hawaii with a child protection order from Madison County requiring her to produce Tylee and JJ in Rexburg by January 30th. The next day, on January 26th, law enforcement in Hawaii serve search warrants on the persons of Chad and Lori And on a black Ford Explorer that they had rented. Law enforcement found birth certificates for both Tylee and JJ. Tylee's financial transaction card. JJ's iPad. Another iPad logged into JJ's account. JJ's school registration receipts. And they had a huge bag of cash. That is extremely suspicious and concerning. Also on the 26th, law enforcement served another search warrant for the condo that Lori and Chad are currently renting. And if you remember, or hopefully I had mentioned this previously, that Lori and Chad had listed on their rental application that they had no children. The condo was a two-bedroom, and when they searched it, law enforcement found two lawn chairs, two exercise mats, two towels in the whole house. There were no items that appeared to belong to any children in the home. There was no evidence that a seven-year-old boy was living there, such as clothing, toys, books, medications, etc., and the second room of the condo showed no signs that it was being lived in. I think this was around the time that Nate Eaton from East Idaho News was able to kind of ambush the couple and question them where the kids are both Chad and Lori didn't really respond when Nate told her that people were praying for her and her kids her response was that's nice you can find that video online and it will be in the show notes eventually but that footage of Nate kind of Chasing them down, and you should listen to the backstory that he has regarding how he ended up in Hawaii in the first place. It's really good investigative work, that's for sure. I think that Nate Eaton is really cool and he does such a good job reporting on this story. Also, on the 26th, Lori and Chad are detained and questioned. In separate police cars they are not arrested and were released on the 29th of January Kay and Larry file for emergency guardianship of JJ in Rexburg Idaho also on the 29th so this is three days after Chad and Lori had their encounter with law enforcement in Hawaii they clear out the condo where where they were renting and they move to the Kauai Beach Resort. Lori had been served previously with an order from the Rexburg Police Department and the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare to produce both of the children on January 30th. That date came and it went. Lori did not produce the children at the courthouse on January 30th of 2020 like she was supposed to. On that same day, Lori retains Daniel Hempy, an, attor- an attorney in Kauai, Hawaii, to represent her. One of the things that you should note is that... When Lori had her church records transferred to the branch in Kauai, Tylee and, JJ's Valo, Tylee and JJ's names were not included in the record. Chad didn't transfer any of his records and at the time it was just, it's. and even now, it's disputed if he was still a member of the church in January of 2020 Or had he already been excommunicated? In February of 2020, Lori and Chad start attending church at the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Hawaii. And even though Chad may have been excommunicated at the time, he wouldn't have been turned away because of his excommunication. On February 4th, the Life Academy in Arizona, which was JJ's previous school, they blocked Lori's access from his student app. Even though he had not attended school there since the summer of 2019, she was still accessing the app and getting updates. That is a little weird, and I'm wondering if it was possibly because she was developing a, not, well, for lack of words, another fake story because she had told so many already by June and February, or by January of 2020. Let me remind you, this is about February of 2020. So if I keep saying June like I have been, I apologize ahead of time. On February 4th of 2020, East Idaho News publishes surveillance footage of the storage unit that Lori had been using. It's the same storage unit where they found all of the kids' stuff put away. It's the same storage unit that had the spare tire and the seat from the vehicle put into it also in the surveillance footage lori chad and alex were seen at that storage unit multiple times sometimes together sometimes separate but all of them had been there on february 5th of 2020 rich robertson a pi comes forward and says that Boudreaux identifies Alex Cox as the one who shot at him. Robertson was hired by Brandon Boudreaux to investigate what happened. When Robertson came forward, he stated that the vehicle involved in the shooting belonged to Charles Vallow, and that is correct. It is, or was, registered to Charles Vallow, even though it was Tylee's daily driver, and he described it as being a green Jeep Cherokee with Texas license plates. It was actually a gray 2008 Jeep Wrangler, but who can tell the difference between a Wrangler and a Cherokee? I sure can't. I know that Angie can, because she owns a Jeep, but I don't even know what kind. There's no way that I could tell you What type of Jeep she has. Robertson said it was green but it was actually gray and often in documents or even in real life this vehicle tends to look green in certain light. I know that my husband who's colorblind he wouldn't even be able to tell if it was blue green or gray because all of those colors look the same to him try playing Risk. That's fun because he thinks all of the little soldiers on the game board are the same exact color. On February 10th, law enforcement report that while they were searching Lori's things in Hawaii, they found Tylee's cell phone. On February 12th, Keith Morrison from Dateline receives a tip that Lori and Chad are planning to go to Mexico. I'm wondering if that's why they had the huge bag of cash with them, is that they were trying to go underground in Mexico at that point. I mean, law enforcement had already stopped them, searched all of their stuff, and I think at that point they knew that they were on to them. On February 14th, Dateline airs a two-hour episode called Where Are the Children? And it's the first documentary or TV special that really gets into this case. Since then, there have been numerous documentaries and even a Lifetime movie. Exploring this case and what's happened. On a side note, Keith Morrison has, I believe it's a five or six episode podcast special called Doomsday Mom about this case. I can't remember exactly when it aired, it was sometime in the last year, but it is an excellent resource. And everybody loves Keith Morrison's voice. Come on, if you don't, then I don't know what to tell ya. On February 16th, Lori and Chad check out of the Kauai Marriott Resort. They are seen (coughs) boarding a plane to Maui. Lori and Chad were in Maui for maybe two days, and then on February 18th, They go back to Kauai. Also on the 18th, a search warrant was served at the storage unit at the Self Storage Plus. We've seen a lot of the footage from there. I'm sure not all of it has been released, but it does show a lot of suspicious activity. And police removed all of the items in the unit. All of the kids' stuff were there. Baby blankets, photo albums, toys. Everything was just cleaned out of Lori's house and put in that storage unit. And I don't want to assume or make assumptions or anything like that, but it was like she was trying to erase them completely. And I don't know if it's because she was feeling guilty or if she was just hiding the fact that they had never existed. Because she and Chad told people multiple stories that she never had kids, that her, that Tylee had been dead for a while, that they were empty nesters, that all the kids had grown up and moved away. So I don't know the reasoning behind why she would get rid of all of their stuff. The same day, so we're still on the 18th, that the storage unit was searched and everything was taken out and removed by law enforcement, the Madison County Prosecuting Attorney's Office files a criminal complaint against Lori. There are five crimes included in the complaint, two felony counts of desertion and non-support of dependent children, resisting or obstructing officers, criminal solicitation to commit a crime, and contempt of court. The desertion and non-support of dependent children, both of those charges are felonies, and then the other three charges are misdemeanors. Anyone who watches true crime documentaries or listens to true crime podcasts, they know that a lot of the times people are charged with a lesser crime until they have enough evidence for the bigger charges. In this case, her current charges are murder and conspiracy to commit murder. But they had to get her with something. And the reason they do that is so that they can keep an eye on them. If they're not able to arrest them, that gives that person ample opportunity to go into hiding. And there was information that Laurie and Chad were intending to go into hiding in Mexico. On February 20th, Lori is arrested and taken into custody by the Kauai police. She is held on a $5 million bond pending extradition to Idaho. The next day was Lori's first court appearance in Kauai. And the lawyer that they had, that they had uh, retained like two weeks earlier Daniel Hempy requested that the bail be reduced from five million to ten thousand he said it was because there was only a couple felonies and some misdemeanors but the judge did keep it at five million I think a large portion of that was they didn't know how much money Lori and Chad had at the time and again they needed to keep her where they knew she was at. Lori asserts her right to an extradition hearing to fight the extradition to Idaho and that hearing was scheduled for March 2nd. The prosecuting attorney, Justin Collar, requested that Lori be remanded without bail and Collar also requested an identification hearing be set for March 5th. Lori then exercised her right to demand a governor's warrant, and Hempy alleged that the police officers from Idaho questioned her with the Kauai police without her lawyer, and they knew that she had retained a lawyer. The prosecuting attorney caller also requested that if Lori posts bail, that she surrender her passport if she has one to the police department. But it didn't really matter at that point because her bail was not lowered and I don't think she would have been able to even get $5 million. Lori was then booked into the Kauai Community Correctional Center waiting her extradition hearing. Also in February of twenty twenty, Melanie Boudreaux's new husband, Ian Pulowski, is cooperating with law enforcement. His ex wife showed him text messages, emails. And things like that that made him suspicious of Melanie. And he mentions in one of his interviews to law enforcement, and I'm not sure if it was the one in February or not, because he had several interviews with law enforcement, that Melanie knew that Alex was going to try to kill Brandon. Brandon alleged that the reason why Melanie was trying to kill him was because of a million dollar life insurance policy that he had, which he couldn't cancel it if he wanted to because she had all of the access information and she was the one paying for it. So, and she was listed as the beneficiary. You can purchase a life insurance policy on anyone. And only the person who initiates it can cancel it. So, most of the murders, there was some type of monetary gain behind it. So, it is likely that the reason Melanie did try to kill Brandon, and again, this is my personal opinion, I do believe that she conspired with Alex to kill Brandon. It would have made her life easier and she would have been a million dollars richer. But that's my personal opinion. That's not factual. And we try to stay away from those personal opinions when it comes to this case. All facts. On February 26th, Lori Vallow again requests that her bond be lowered in Hawaii. And... That request is denied. She then waived her right to an extradition hearing, which was scheduled the beginning of March, and it was decided she will return to Idaho. She agreed basically to the extradition when she waived her right. Also on the 26th, Melanie Pulowski's lawyer issues a press release denying she had admitted to doing anything wrong or anything to the kids and denies knowing where they are. He also stated that she denied having anything to do with the attempted murder of Brandon which contradicts multiple statements and evidence that had been Not released, really, so what's the word I'm looking for? The statements that had been given and evidence that was found that she had known and even conspired with Alex in Brandon's murder attempt. On February 29th, Chad returns to Rexburg and in March. Lori will be extradited, and she lands in Rexburg, Idaho, on the 5th. That's it for today's episode. Next episode will go through March, April, and May. Again, there isn't a lot that went on in those months, but what did occur at that time is important. So, again, next week's episode will be March, April, and May of 2020. And the episode after that will be June of 2020 when they found the kids. That's it for today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe, save, follow, rate, and follow us on social media at Hot Crime Cold Coffee. See you tomorrow.